Okay, well, let's turn to uh, the Gospel of John. Wow. We're going back to the Gospel of John. Um, We had our last study of John back on the 18th of August, if you could believe that. So it has been quite a while, and so we might need to have a little bit of a a recap here to kind of get back into this. John chapter uh, 18 is where we will be. Um, I'm just going to take us mentally back to John chapter 13. I won't go back to any further than that because it really sets up where we are today. If you remember John John chapter 13, the, the disciples and Jesus are in the upper room. Okay, the famous upper room, the Last Supper has taken place. Uh, Jesus uh, begins to wash their disciples' feet. That's kind of really how that sort of narrative begins there. And it sets the stage for all that he's going to teach them in the following chapters. He wants to be the example for them that they're going to need to be humble servant leaders. That's the type of leadership he's looking, uh, looking for. And you have to remember that in their number at that time sits Judas. Uh, Judas is with them. And so so Jesus uh, begins to sort of segue and announce that um, there is a betrayer in their midst. And they're all shocked to hear that. Well, all of them except one, (laughs) because it's Judas. He's not shocked at all. And so Jesus dismisses Judas. He tells him, what you do, go do quickly. And we're told that no one really knew why Jesus said that to him. And so really the identity of of Judas as the betrayer is hidden from the rest of them. Um, They really don't know um, who it is. And once Judas leaves, uh, Jesus is free then to begin his his formal instruction. He's going to teach the remaining 11. And so chapters 14 through 16 contain all of that teaching. That's what we've looked at over the last months. And we won't recap all of that today. You can go back and listen to it. But suffice it to say that the predominant uh, theme and purpose of that teaching is to prepare the disciples to continue on the mission of Jesus in the absence of Jesus, right? They're going to need to continue what Jesus has begun, but they're going to have to do it without him. And so Jesus is letting them know it's going to be difficult. If the world hated me, it's almost certainly going to hate its followers as well. But he encourages them through that. Jesus has overcome the world. And he won't be leaving them alone. Remember, he says, I will not leave you orphans. And so we have the great uh, teaching of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send someone to come to you. The helper will come to you, the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus elaborated in those chapters on the purpose and on the work of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, it is to testify of Jesus. And it's to make the invisible presence of Christ visible in the lives of the, the disciples, that they would know that he is there with them. And so at the end of chapter 14, and this is really where I want to launch from, verse 31, we read these words. It says, arise, let us go from from here. And it's important to remember that because it is presumed then that all of the teaching uh, after that, which is chapters 15 and 16 and even 17, has really taken place on the road. Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room and they've been moving along. And even in that time, he's talking about the vine and the branches. And no doubt he, you know, he's, he saw a vine and he's pointing to that as Jesus often did, pointed to things, the fig tree and things that were around him. Um, that has all been happening as they've traveled 
through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to the Kidron, to, to the Kidron Valley. And when you come to chapter 17, chapter 17 begins with these words. Jesus spoke these words. And then he lift up his eyes to heaven and, he, and then he says the prayer. And that's important because we're beginning chapter 18 today. And chapter 18 begins this way, when Jesus had spoken these words. So chapter 17 says Jesus spoke these words. And chapter 18 says when Jesus had spoken these words. So the formal teaching time has ended with Jesus' prayer. And now Jesus heads toward the cross. That's where his eyes are set. And we have to look past the garden in John's gospel. We're looking past Gethsemane. Jesus is heading to the cross. When, when Judas left that upper room, you might remember this, Jesus declared this. As soon as Judas left, he said, now the Son of Man is glorified. Do you remember that? Now the Son of Man is glorified. Well, he won't really be glorified till quite a bit later, but in his mind, he's glorified. Jesus is looking to the cross, and he firmly knows that his hour has come. All through John's gospel, you remember we pointed out all the places where my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But now his hour has come. In John chapter 12, verse 27, he said this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. At that point, Jesus knows his hour has come. And from that point, he's, he's resolutely fixed his eyes upon the cross. And this is what I want you to understand from this, is that Jesus was no victim. He had complete control over the events of his life. You might think back to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. He said, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. So having spoken the words that Jesus needed to speak to his disciples, his, his final words there, he resolutely sets his face toward the cross. And that's what we come to here in John chapter 18. We come to the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And we're just be covering the first 11 verses this morning. So follow along with me, if you will. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for 
the opportunity we have once again to open your word, to come back to this amazing gospel, the gospel of John, and to begin once again to follow um, the track of, of your life and really the beginning of your path to death here, death on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would just really um, make this real to us. This is a real event in real history that we are to, Lord, look deeply into and understand eternal implications from. We need your Holy Spirit. We need you to reveal truth, to prepare our hearts for the truth you have for us today. Would you do that, Father? Pray that you would, that you'd be here with us, and that your name would be glorified through our time today. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. Now, as we read that, um, that's pretty much all we have of the Garden of Gethsemane. So you might have noticed that John's account of the happenings of the Garden of Gethsemane is lacking something. It is lacking that prayer of Jesus in the garden that we all know about, right? Um, he prayed three times, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you Will And John leaves that out. Uh, remember, John has a different emphasis. His gospel is to be a, a supplement to the others. He's not looking to repeat, um, and he's not contradicting either. And while the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seek to, to highlight Jesus' humanity, John has been highlighting his divinity, isn't he? And so it is clearly seen in these verses. What you cannot escape as you read these verses is the divine Jesus. And I want you to see that today. We're going to look at three things here. We're going to see his omniscience. We're going to see his omnipotence. And we're going to see his obedience here. But let's look at very, the very beginning, verse 1. We're going to see his omniscience in these first four verses. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples uh, entered. Now, when it says he went out with his disciples, remember, he's already left the upper room. So what does it mean when John is saying he went out? Well, he, has went, out, he went out of Jerusalem now. He's leaving the confines of the city. And he's going through the brook Kidron. Now, that is the ravine that's located uh, east of and really quite a ways below um, the Temple Mount. It lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And the word brook uh, there, it means a flowing in winter torrent, which would be the case in winter. That would just be a, a river. But in the rest of the year, it would be sort of a dry uh, riverbed, easily uh, crossed. But here's what's significant. There is a garden on the other side. He's going to the garden. And it says that Judas knew of that place. Jesus is going to a garden and Judas knows of the garden because Jesus, Jesus often went there and, and met with his disciples there. So Jesus is crossing the Kidron to meet his betrayer. It is the scene of a betrayal. And what's interesting about this and why I draw it to your attention is that the first time the Kidron is mentioned in Scripture is with a very similar scene. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 15. I just want you to take you there really, really quickly because it's pretty, uh, pretty fascinating. This is not an accident. Certainly not in Scripture are there any accidents. Uh, 2 Samuel 15. The first time we see this place mentioned, you might remember Absalom has rebelled against his father David. This is David's son. And so David and all of the people within the city have to escape his, his treachery. And in 2 Samuel 15, 
looking at verse 14, it says, So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, so they're in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And then you skip ahead to verse 23. And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And then you skip down to verse 31. Or verse 30, actually. Look at this. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives. So he went down, and then he went up. And he wept as he went up, and he had his head covered, and he went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's um, friend. He was his trusted counselor. And he learns at that moment that he has been betrayed at the hands of Ahithophel. He's learned of the treachery of his son Absalom, but also of the betrayal of his trusted friend Ahithophel. And all this happens, and he has to cross the Kidron Valley and go up to the Mount of Olives. And there he learns of the betrayal. Jesus is crossing that very same valley to enter a garden that Judas knows about, where the betrayer will almost certainly be. And this betrayal will take place in a garden. And there was another garden where a betrayal took place. There was the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, who betrayed God, the creator, in a garden choosing to follow themselves rather than to follow the commands of God, listening to the counsel of the serpent and not the commands of God. So here, in another garden, there will be a betrayal taking place. And it says that Jesus was going there because he often met there with his disciples. Why is that? Why was Jesus always going to this garden? Free figs? (laughs) Well, Luke 22, 39 tells us that he was always coming out. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. It says he was accustomed to it. And that was true because Jesus often went to the Mount of Olives whenever he came to uh, Jerusalem. In John chapter 7, verse 53, that chapter ends with this, this phrase, and everyone went to his own house. And then the very next chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, begins with, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is teaching, and everyone's done hearing Jesus. They all go to their houses. Where does Jesus go? Well, he goes to the Mount of Olives because there was this garden there, and he would go there, and he would find rest and comfort and solitude in this garden. And it was on this mount that Jesus also taught his disciples. He gave his famous Olivet Olivet discourse on that mountain where he talked about the second coming in Matthew 20, 24. He also ministered in that nearby town, Bethany, the home of Uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, right? That was close by. And so he would just go to that garden afterward. It was a convenient place for him to stay and be away from the crowds. And certainly there were crowds. During the Passover, Jerusalem was crowded. And if you were hoping to find a place to rest your head, you were probably going to find shelter out under the open air, under a tree, in a cave, uh, someplace. Well, this is Passover time, right? That's where we are. We're in the the Passion Week. The triumphal entry has already happened. 
And so Jesus, he'd come into the city, he'd teach in the temple, but then he'd return to the mount, and that's exactly what he did the entire Passion Week. Luke records that for us in Luke 21, 37. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. So there he is teaching inside the city during the day, and he goes out and stays on the mount at night. And so here, we're just getting the description. Jesus is going to a place that he was well accustomed uh, to going to, uh, that Judas the betrayer knew Jesus would go to. Why, why, why go there, right? Why, why not flee? Well, that's the question that is inherent in this whole passage. Why? Look at verse 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, your Bibles might say that Judas came with a cohort, It's uh, spira is the word. It's a tenth part of a legion. So 600 uh, men. But it also can be a maniple, which would be a 30th part of a legion, which would be about 200 men. It can also mean any detachment of soldiers at all. Either way, this is a significant number of men, right? A significant number of soldiers that are coming along with uh, Judas. And for the Romans to send so many soldiers to arrest one individual, that is not unusual. Because in Acts chapter 23, 23, we give the details that were 470 soldiers that accompanied a certain Paul, right, from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So they're really going along just in case anything really serious would take place. And they're really just backup. They're backup for the officers. They're backup for the Pharisees that have been sent from the chief priests. And they come with, did you notice the specific details there? They come with lanterns, torches, and weapons. It's another one of those little details that makes us realize someone has been an eyewitness. John is there. John sees it. They've got lanterns. They've got torches. They even have weapons. Those are specific things only an eyewitness person would um, include. So here's the scene. Jesus, his disciples, they're in the garden. This this huge procession uh, arrives And what does Jesus do? This is what I love about this passage. Jesus, verse 4, Therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? He doesn't flee. He comes forward. He comes forward knowing all things that would come upon him. You could say that because Jesus knew all things that would come upon him, he went forward. Because he knew exactly what would take place, he went forward. Well, what things did Jesus know? I want to just refresh your memory. Go back to John chapter 6. We were already given some of these things earlier, but it's been quite a while. So I want to take us there. John chapter 6, 64. 6 verse 64. These are some of the things we've already been told by John that Jesus knew. John chapter 6, verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. He knew those ones that wouldn't believe, and he knew the very one who would betray him. In John chapter 13, just skip ahead a little bit from there. John chapter 13, the first three verses give us quite a bit of detail here. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. He, he knew he knew that his hour had come, that he is going to be departing. He, he knew that the betrayer was, was coming. He, he knew that the Father had given him all things into his hand, that he was going to God. He's looking past the cross. He's looking to that point. But why does John include this? John includes this note for us. Therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward. Because Jesus wasn't a victim. He went forward knowing what would come upon him. They came with lanterns and torches, not because it was, it was dark, it was Passover. There should have been a full moon um, at that time. They came with lanterns and torches because they expected a chase. <laughs> they expected to be uh, hunting um, a, a, a fugitive for him to flee, but instead he willingly offers himself. And if you remember, a few days earlier, the crowds had hailed him as the Messiah, right? The triumphal entry. But he's not come to reign as their king. He's come to die as their substitute. He, if he went into the city at this time and they came to arrest him in the city, that could have been, uh, like that could have incited an insurrection of some kind, right? Some kind of revolt, some kind of rebellion, right? They could have grabbed him and forced him to be king. This is not why he came. Jesus doesn't go into the city where it's almost certainly safer. He goes to the garden, <coughs> knowing his betrayer is there. Listen to Matthew Henry, what he says about this passage. When the people would have forced him to take a crown and wished to make him king, he withdrew and hid himself. Do you remember that in John 6, 15? We want to make you king. He withdrew and hid himself. But when they came to force him to his cross, he offered himself. He came to this world to suffer, and he went to the other world to reign. So Jesus, he knows all things. He knows all things that are going to come upon him. And he went forward. He, he knew about the coming kiss of betrayal of Judas. Think about that kiss. It's not described so de- in, in detail here, but that kiss, that, that sign of affection, right? And trust. That kiss of betrayal is coming. He knew about that. He knew about the desertion of the disciples. He knew they would flee. He prophesied about that. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will, will scatter. He knew about the betrayal, um, or denial, uh, rather, of Peter. He told Peter that. He knew about the blows he would receive at the hands of the officers once they arrested him. He knew about the scourging that he would receive at the hands of the Romans, ripping the flesh from his body. He knew about it. He knew about the crown of thorns that would be pressed into his skull. He knew about the cross, the beam that he would have to carry to his own site of execution. He knew about those nails that would be driven through his hands and his feet. He knew about those He knew about the sins of the world that would be placed upon him, and he knew about the Father's forsaking of him. He knew all those things. But you know what else he knew? He knew that he was going to rise from the dead. He knew that he was going to conquer death. He knew that he was going to ascend to the Father, and he knew that he was going to be reinstated in glory. We... um, We're not like Jesus. We focus on the, the thorns. We focus on the nails, right? We focus on the blows that we get from the world. Jesus is, he knows all those things are coming. He's not focused on that. He's he's looking to glory. Now the Son of Man is glorified. What an example for us, isn't it? We should be looking for glory. 
Jesus knows all these things. This highlights his omniscience. Omniscience is the all-knowing power of God. God is all-knowing, right? All-knowing. Anyone here all-knowing? Good, no hands went up. That would have been awkward. (laughs) He's omniscient here. He knows all things that are going to come upon him, and yet he goes forward. I want to highlight two things. Why does he do this? Two things, probably many things. I'm just going to highlight two things. His love for you. His love for the sheep, because he's the good shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. He does that because he loves his sheep. He willingly, he willingly heads there. I'm going to the garden. Well, shouldn't we go here? I'm going to the garden. Because he knows his betrayer is there and he loves his sheep and he's going to lay down his life for the sheep. But not just because of the love of the sheep, because of the love of the father and the father's love for him. It highlights that as well, doesn't it? In John chapter 10, verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Because I lay down my life, the father loves me. Jesus is so obedient to the father because he, he loves him. So he loves you. He loves his father. Knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and he said to them, whom are you seeking? <laughs> I like that. Just, just playing a little game. Whom are you seeking? Got a lot of people here, guys. What are you looking for? Someone lose a coin? <laughs> right? Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking the one who knows all things? Are you seeking that one? Because I know all these things. Are you seeking the one who knows that there's a betrayer in your midst? Whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking today? Or what are you seeking today? I think this, this phrase, whom are you seeking, can be applied to us today. Who, who are we seeking? People are seeking something. There's no non-seekers in life. We're all seeking something, right? Whom are you seeking? What are you seeking? Jesus says, whom are you seeking? I read in Isaiah 55 today, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Whom are you seeking, he says. He knows all things, but he asks the question. He puts it in their court. Whom are you seeking? What do you want? What are you here for? Look at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, this is a repeat of something we've seen before. The word he there, when he says I am he, is not in the original Greek. What Jesus said is I am. I am. That's exactly the same phrase Jesus answered in John 8, 58, right? Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones because they wanted to kill him. Because he used the very name of God, the very name of God used in Exodus 3, 14, when, when Moses asked the burning bush, God in the bush, right? The God in the bush. Who, who should I say you are? God can't, you know, compare himself to anything other than him. I am, I am. That's me, right? I am, I am. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same phrase here. It's Yahweh, I am. And so once again, Jesus claims for himself the name of God. He does it here, I am. And before we get the response of the crowd, which is amazing, John inserts that little phrase, did you see it? And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Almost seems redundant, doesn't it? 
Why tell us Judas is there? Because you've told us that Judas knew about the place, right? You told us that Judas arrived with all these troops, and now he tells us, and oh yeah, and Judas stood with them. Why, why do we need that detail? Who is Judas standing with? He stood with them. He stood with them. Jesus is here, but Judas stands with them. He's chosen his side, right? He's on that side. He's on the side of them. And Jesus is here. And John wants to say, listen, this is important because Judas has no mastery over Jesus. None. He's over there with this group. And look what happens to them when Jesus opens his mouth. When the spoken word of Christ comes out, he knocks them all to the ground. I am he, verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, you will read commentaries, and people will try to explain away this passage by saying, this is what happened. Okay, it's dark. They've got torches. They've got lanterns. They're coming up to the spooky garden. And Jesus pops out of the dark. Ha! Right? Who are you seeking? And these elite trained cohort of soldiers are so frightened that one falls back into the other and that one falls back into the other and you, you have a whole 600-man domino, domino effect happening here. They're just cartoony, laughable. Listen, I don't want anyone walking away today saying, oh, you know, someone probably just stumbled and before you knew it, they all... The Bible repeatedly highlights the power of God's spoken word. There's power... In the word. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. That's power, folks. That's power. I can't make anything by the breath of my mouth except to fog up my window. That's it. But when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, he will execute judgment, and he's going to do it, by the sword of his mouth, or by the power of his word. And when you go to Revelation, I love Revelation. John has a, a vision of Jesus in glory. In Revelation 1.16, this is what he says, describing Jesus. He had in his right hand seven stars, representing the seven churches. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. There's a picture for you, Right? Brilliant, glowing Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. And in the next chapter, Jesus is talking to those seven stars, those seven churches. He's talking to the church in Pergamos. He's threatening to use that sword, that very sword. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That sword. The power of my word. As you go through all of Revelation, you get to chapter 19, verse 15. Jesus returns. This is the second coming of Christ, his return to come and judge. And it says, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. He does that with his word. And a few verses later, verse 21, you see what happens with that. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. See, Armageddon, you hear about these things, right? The big last day battle. It's not going to be much of a battle. All these armies are going to come against 
Israel and against Jesus, and he's just going to go, no. And they're done. The power of his word. And I cannot bring myself to look into this passage and see that uh, one of the Roman guys stumbled and they fell to the ground. He surprised them. He jumped out of the shadows and took them by surprise. No, no, no. That is not what John wants us to see here. John is highlighting his divinity. What you see here is his omnipotence. This is a theophany. They have seen God in this moment. I am, boom, and they hit the ground. With the power of the spoken name of God, they're leveled, taken to their knees, forced to bow at the feet of Jesus. Doesn't Paul tell us that in Philippians 2, verse 10, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow? Yes. That's how it will happen. How, do you, how does it happen? How does Jesus make every knee bow? Done. <laughs> bow. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? You're seeking the all-powerful one, the omnipotent one, the one who has power uh, even to forgive sins. That's the greatest power, to forgive sins. Only God can do that. Jesus said that when he healed the paralytic so that you may know that the Son of Man has power, right, to forgive sins. I I say, take up your, your bed and rise and go home. So you know I have that kind of power. Be easy to say, oh, your sins are forgiven. No proof of there. But so you know that I have that power, that kind of authority. He says, take up your bed. Jesus is showing his omnipotent power here. Whom are you seeking? He asks them a second time after they've picked themselves up and dusted themselves off. In verse 7, he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of, of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I've told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost, I have lost none. Now they gave Jesus the answer that he wanted, Jesus of Nazareth, and he gave them the same reply, I am. Um, but why does he ask them twice? Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? I think he has asked them twice to force them to acknowledge that they are only here for him. They're only here for Jesus. We're, we're here for you. And the reason is, is that He wants to let these go their way. Okay, great. Therefore, if you seek me, if you're here for Jesus of Nazareth, I am, then let these go their way. Who's he talking about? The disciples, right? He's thinking of their well-being. He's thinking of their welfare. Jesus, knowing all things that would come to him, isn't thinking about him. He's thinking about them. Okay, if you're looking for me, I'm here. You take me. I'm not giving a fight. I'm, I'm right here. But then you let these go their way. You've told me two times you're looking for me. You take me. That is your your Christ. That's that's your Jesus, right? Because that's the Jesus I'm reading here. That's your Jesus. The Jesus says, "I, I will go instead of them. You take me, but you let these guys go their way. I think John makes that note for us so that we could see his amazing love for his own. And he basically says that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Who made that saying? Jesus. So John says, oh, he did this so that he would fulfill his own promise. He did this that he would fulfill his own statement. It's in John chapter 17. It Mine's on the same page here if you've got it in your Bibles. John chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus said these words, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost 
except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The scripture is fulfilled that the, the son of perdition, the one who would betray him, would be lost. But Jesus' prophecy here is that none of his would be lost. None of his would be lost. That's what John is quoting here when Jesus said, of those whom you gave me, I've lost, I've lost none. I've lost none. Jesus said the similar thing back in John chapter 6, verse 39 as well. I was reading a comment on Spurgeon, and I just love what he said about, uh, from Spurgeon about this passage. And this is what he said. It was but an hour or two since Jesus uttered this sentence, but it is already among the inspired scriptures. And it had begun to take effect and to be fulfilled at once. It is not the age of God's word, but the truth of it that constitutes its power. That's only a couple hour old prophecy, he's saying. That's only a couple hour old uh, scripture that's been written. And it's not because of the age. It's because of the truth. The power is in the truth. The power is in the truth of his word. Your word is truth, right? The power is there. Because Jesus spoke it, it is true. It is true. And so Jesus says, you take me because uh, I have made a promise. Of those the Father has given me, I've lost none. Jesus promises that. And he's the good shepherd who gives us life for the sheep. When you continue to look at his words in that passage in John chapter 10, I have it for you here. Verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But then in verse 12, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. He does not care about the sheep. Jesus protects his disciples here because he doesn't want to lose any. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost none. So you let them go. Now, there's a very interesting implication here. If Jesus is saying that, the implication is this, is that if they did arrest his disciples, if those disciples had to go through the, the trial and that whole process and maybe imprisonment and maybe even uh, crucifixion uh, as well, would they, would they lose faith? Can faith fail is the question. Well, if left, left up to us, yes, of course. Stacy made a great point. Like, if, can strength fail? Yeah, my own. Can my faith fail? Yeah, my own. Thank God it's not just left up to me. I addressed this last week, and uh, you can go back and listen to that. We, we took more time to kind of cover this, but in the closing verses there of Jude, Jude 24, right? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who is able to do it, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is able to do it. You're not able to do it. I can't do that in my own strength. I certainly wouldn't do it without stumbling. And I certainly couldn't present myself faultless before God. It's him who is able to do it. And the reason we can never be lost, the reason uh, saving faith can never fail is because Jesus keeps it secure. It's his omnipotent power omnipotence, his power. I just want to hit two points on that as well. How do we know that's true? Well, one is he constantly intercedes for us, Jesus does. He constantly intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He saves you to the uttermost because 
He's the one truly petitioning for you. He's the one truly praying for you, interceding for you. Incredible. Not only does Jesus protect you, die for you, but then uh, after that, he goes and continues to pray for you, intercede for you. Oh God, let their faith not fail. Strengthen Stacy in this moment, right? I know she's punching the wall right now, but you know, give her some eyes, turn her eyes to me, right? He constantly intercedes for us. Second reason is he unceasingly loves us. We looked at this verse last week, but I'm just going to bring it up. Romans 8, 38 to 39. Paul just really looking at these same truths. says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's trying to think of all the things. There's just nothing. There's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. Ultimately, it's the omnipotent power of Christ that wins in the end. Martin Luther understood this really well. It's clear by that amazing hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Are you familiar with that one? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Love that. Martin Luther got it. Did we do this in our own strength? Absolutely not. I would be losing that battle. He must win the battle. He must do to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. Amen on that. If you seek me, let these go their way because I want that to be fulfilled. Of those whom you gave me, I've lost none. We see here the omniscient, the all-knowing power of Christ displayed. John, it makes that absolutely clear. Jesus knows all things that are coming to him, but then we see this amazing power, his omnipotence. And what's funny is that, that he could have even put something more in here, couldn't he? You, you could go to the uh, synoptics and find out that Jesus actually healed that servant's ear that's coming up here, right? The ear that's gonna get cut off here. He, he heals that. There's more omnipotence to be seen. But I'm going to focus on his obedience. But let's look at this, verses 10 and 11. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now, Luke's gospel records that, that all the disciples cried out, Lord, shall we strike with the sword at this moment? So the disciples are, are ready, right? They see the army coming. They see the torches and all those things. And so they're, they're ready to go. But, but, but John just shows us Peter being Peter, right? He doesn't wait for the Lord to answer that question. He, he just strikes uh, and, and, and poorly at, at that. He needs to stick to fishing. Uh, because clearly he's going for the guy's head and he only manages to sever his ear. But perhaps he wanted to prove to Jesus what he had earlier said in John uh, 13. Remember, he says, Lord, I will lay down my life for your sake. You remember that? I, I would die for you, Lord. Maybe he's just trying to, to prove that at this moment. I, I'll show you right now. Ha! So he strikes at the nearest person. He cuts off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Only John gives us the name. We don't get the name of the, the servant in the other gospels. We get Malchus uh, here. And Luke is the one that adds the healing. Jesus says, permit even this, and he touched the ear, and it healed him. 
So we don't know if the ear was just completely off or he just sort of severed it and it was kind of hanging there by some skin. Well, you know, but Jesus just goes up there and says, permit me to do this. This is done. Let me heal that. There's omnipotence right there. But this just shows you the hardness of heart of these people, right? He's knocked them over with the power of his word. He's presented himself. You can take me. And then he's healed this man that his own disciple, you know, went out and took action on doing. He's, he's like, I'm, I'm, well, this is not why we're here. This is not why we're here. I'm going to heal this guy. The reason is Jesus is, is there to be obedient to the will of the Father. I, I want to be obedient to the will of the Father, don't you? I, I, I'm not happy with myself when I'm not obedient. I'm not. And I know it doesn't please the Lord. It doesn't please the Lord when we're not obedient. He's not happy about that. But does he still love you? He does still love you. He does still love you. And he wants you to draw to him because he wants you to know that he's a loving father and he will willingly forgive you. He wants to offer that. And Jesus, though, Jesus is our role model because he's perfectly obedient. In this moment, this would be very hard for any human to go forward, wouldn't it? But Jesus says, I'm here to do the will of the Father. Permit this. Put your sword into the sheath, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? He has given this to me to do, and I've got to drink it. Jesus doesn't need defending anyway, does he? Uh, Matthew, in his gospel, records this in 2653. He says, do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels, right? You've got, he's like, what? You've got, uh, what, a tenth of a legion here? I could pray right now and have 12 legions of angels. They'll drop kick you guys all the way back to Jerusalem, right? I, I, I got this. I don't need defending and Peter's act once again proves that he just fails to understand the mission of Jesus. They fail to see it. And none of his disciples understood it. Matthew and Mark tell us that all after Jesus is arrested, they all forsook him and fled. Jesus should have asked his disciples at that moment, whom are you seeking? Because I think some of them were probably thinking, all right, right? You've been hailed as king by the crowd. Let's make it happen. Whom are you seeking? They wanted some kind of conquering king. They want to be free from the oppression of Rome. Jesus' response to Peter's impetuous act is powerful. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? What's the cup? What, what's the cup? Cup is a strange word there. We don't use that, right? right? I, don't, I don't use that on my kids when they're disobedient. <laughs> right? I, I need you to drink the cup of my wrath, right? Swallow that on down. I did have a teacher try to do that. They filled up a, a, a thing, a water full of salt. That was my punishment. I had to drink salt water. It's like, oh, I'm drinking the cup. No, I didn't say that, but it's, it's the cup. It's, Jesus prayed for that cup to be removed from him in the garden. John doesn't cover it here, but Matthew 26, 39 says, he went a little further, fell on his face and prayed, oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's the cup of divine judgment. This is the cup that's been given to him. This is going to you. Psalm 75, 8 says, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Who's going to drain it down? Who's going to drink it down? Jesus is. 
he is going to do it. He could have called for help. He could have had legions of angels, but he remained obedient to the Lord and he drank the cup and we'll see that in the coming weeks. Question I just want to end on is, um, whom are you seeking? Hopefully, most of you have sought him and found him. His name is Jesus. He's Jesus of Nazareth, but I see the omnipotent Jesus of Nazareth. I see the omniscient Jesus of Nazareth. I see the fully obedient son to the father. That's the Jesus I see. Uh, People are seeking fellowship in churches. Some want or like even the moral teachings of Jesus. That's okay, but, but you seek Jesus. It's Jesus that you need. It's Jesus that you want. Who are you seeking? Is he the all-knowing? Is the all-powerful God of the Bible? Here we see, we see not a weak or timid man, but we see a humble, powerful God. That's, that's the Jesus John presents to us. And as we go into this, the rest of this Passion Week, and Jesus heads to the cross, I don't want you to see a weak uh, little uh, victim. Jesus has conquered, and John is presenting him to us that way. Yes, there's death in front of him, there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's much to to look at and consider in those things. But he does not want us to focus on the death and the pain and suffering in this life. He wants us to see the life to come. This life is temporary, right? Your testimony was so, so perfect, so timely today to tie into this, so obviously you were listening to the Holy Spirit. Thank you for sharing today again, Stacy. But, but I just want to to challenge us as we continue to study and go through this, that look, look, look at the glorified Savior. Look at the omnipotent, omniscient God that's going to the cross. Not, not a man. Yes, he, he, he is in the body of a man, and he feels the pain, and he sees the mockery, and he hears all those things, but he is God Almighty. And that God will hang on a cross for sinful humanity. You will not find a God like that in any other religion. You, you won't. Allah is so far removed from creation that it can't be, he can't be connected in any way. That is not Allah. Allah can never be connected with creation. Our God becomes the created. He becomes one of us to identify with us, to say, this is how much I love you. And then he doesn't make all these demands. He says, and because I love you and I've shown my love to you, would you follow me? I'm picking on Allah just because I'm studying through Islam right now, but I'm saying Allah makes demands. There's no connection. There's no relationship. You just submit and do this. And that is not a relationship. It's a religion. But Jesus calls us into relationship because he has given us relationship. I come to you. Whom are you seeking? Are you seeking relationship today? You have it. You have it with Christ. He just bids you come. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word today, and I thank you for this amazing gospel that we can come back into it, Lord, and just uh, see Jesus, fully God, fully man, as he goes to the cross. Some things are too difficult for us to really comprehend. We cannot really comprehend the all-powerful, all-knowing God humbling himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross, but you did. Jesus did. And he did that because he loves the Father, wants to be obedient to him, because he loves the sheep. Thank you for the love of Christ today. 
May your name be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.